You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1865th edition of St Edmundbury News Talk, the 11th of February 2022. The editor of this edition is Mary Grenville, the producer is Roger Morris, and your readers are Mary and Adrian Grenville. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. So now we start with some headlines. New outreach service will help domestic abuse victims. Warning that hub traffic could add to roads chaos. Town gears up, kick gears up. A three-day celebration of Queen's Jubilee. Shocking rise in the numbers of sexual offences by teens in 2021. Warning that hub traffic could add to roads chaos. Questions have been raised over whether congested Berris Nedman's roads would be able to cope with increased traffic in the event of schools closures on top of planned development. There are concerns existing traffic chaos in Western Way and Beaton's Way could be exacerbated when West Suffolk Council's public service hubs open. Meanwhile, it is feared the potential closures of Westley and Horringer Court Middle Schools could see the County Upper School in nearby Beaton's Way and Tollgate Primary School in Tollgate Lane, accepting increased pupil numbers and causing more associated traffic. David Nettleton, County and District Councillor, said, We've got more traffic coming on to an already overloaded traffic network. I've been complaining about it for years and so have all the other ward members and many residents. Nothing gets done. Twice a day, the road is already traffic chaos. What's the overall plan? There isn't one, and I don't know what the answer is, but somebody has to devise one. The Western Way hub, which it is estimated will cost between 91 million and 132 million, was granted planning commission subject to conditions including junction capacity works at Newmarket Road, the Asda roundabout, Alding Road and Beaton's Way and Western Way. The road scheme is set to make the biggest impact as a new roundabout in place of existing traffic lights at the junction of Newmarket Road, Western Way and Dettingen Way, alongside the widening works in Newmarket Road. Highways England, in its response to the hub plan, said... The new roundabout would help towards addressing capacity issues along this corridor. Victims of domestic abuse will soon have a place to go to for help and support in Haverhill, thanks to a new outreach service being forged by a well-established West Suffolk Women's Aid Group. Barry St Edmunds Women's Aid Centre is working with Haverhill Town Council and other partners to deliver the Freedom Programme provide a weekly coffee morning, creche facilities and a Stronger Families programme. And the project, which it is hoped will be up and running by May, has this week benefited from a West Suffolk Council Community Chest grant of £16,225. Hayley Pettit, the Support Services Manager for Bury St Edmunds Women's Aid Centre, which has been operating for 48 years, said, Those agencies we are engaging with, we've been to meetings just to establish if there is a need in Haverhill, and there is definitely a need. In that need, the current agencies are doing their best, however, 
there is that missing piece with regard to that domestic abuse specialism. It's the access to the town, Bury, that perhaps might prevent a lady who doesn't drive and is suffering domestic abuse getting to the town. So if it's at the end of their street, then it's literally having that set space that they know they can go to. Haley said figures for Suffolk showed that in 2021 there were 9,700 domestic abuse offences recorded compared to 5,125 five years earlier, a jump of more than 50%. She added that the recent COVID lockdowns had exacerbated the issue. Certainly for ourselves, we've seen a rise in contact throughout the pandemic. Certainly calls from Haverhill are noticeable as well, but in general there's been an increase. The venue for the new service is still being worked on, but it will be managed by one of the Women's Aid Centre's outreach community workers. Haley said that while the services the charity provided were predominantly used by women, it was open to all victims of domestic abuse. Shocking rise in the number of sexual offences by teens in 2021. Sexual abuse offences between teenagers in Suffolk rose by about three quarters in the space of a year, police have said. Figures released by Suffolk Police revealed that there were 211 peer-on-peer sexual offences recorded by young people aged between 13 and 17 last year. The total for 2020 was 120, meaning it rose by 75.8% year-on-year. Online peer-on-peer abuse has been described by police as any form of abuse between young people that involves a digital element. These includes sexting, online abuse, coercion and exploitation, peer-on-peer grooming, threatening language, as well as the distribution of sexualised content and harassment. As part of Sexual Abuse and Sexual Violence Awareness Week, Suffolk Police is highlighting the figures and calling for groups across the county to come together to send the message that all forms of sexual violence are not okay. Tim Passmore, Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner, said the figures were a very sad reflection on our society and highlighted schemes aimed at tackling online abuse, he said. Highlighting the issue on peer-on-peer abuse is absolutely crucial if we're going to reduce incidents of this dreadful behaviour. We all have a part to play to support and educate our young people, to teach them to respect themselves and each other. It is quite shocking to me that young people are exposed to such dreadful material and can find themselves being abused and threatened by their peers via their electronic devices. It's a very sad reflection on our society and something we all need to work together on to stop. It's not okay. Newmarket is planning three days of celebration to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee with a community street party in Palace Street set to be one of the highlights. The monarch, through her love of thoroughbred racing and breeding, has maintained strong links with the town throughout her 70-year reign, and that association will be celebrated in style over the four-day bank holiday weekend in June, with the lighting of a beacon, a special high street parade and event at the Severals, and a Jubilee community lunch, which will take the form of a street party in Palace Street, and a sports day with traditional events like sack and egg and spoon races held in the paddocks of the National Horse Racing Museum which the Queen officially opened during her last official visit to the town in November 2016. Newmarket Town Council has set aside £10,000 to help towards the cost of the celebrations, which will get underway on Thursday, June the 2nd, with a royal proclamation read by the town crier at the Bill Tut Memorial, and at 9.45pm, A beacon will be lit at the Severals with refreshments, including Jubilee Tart being served. 
On Friday, June the 3rd, there will be a high street parade to the Severals where attractions will include funfair rides, a children's archery competition, inflatables and music. Sunday, June the 5th, will be a day of street parties and local celebration with Palace Street chosen as the venue for the street party event planned by the Town Council and the National Horse Raising Museum. On Monday, members of the Town Council's Community Services Committee agreed that, as part of the celebrations, red, white and blue bunting would be put up in the High Street and also agreed to consider proposals to refurbish and restore the town's iconic Jubilee Clock Tower as a permanent commemoration of the Queen's milestone. And now we move on to some general news. Forensic experts still at work to solve mystery of Sudbury's Bones victim. Forensic experts are still trying to shed light on the identity of a suspected murder victim after human remains were discovered in a Sudbury River nearly 18 months ago. Suffolk Police said force is continuing to work with a number of specialist providers after two black bin bags containing human bones were found in the River Stour near Meadowgate and Croft Bridge on August the 27th, 2020. A murder investigation was launched, but a post-mortem examination was not able to establish a cause of death or any form of identification. Officers did reveal the victim was a man, probably athletic or muscular build, and have since established, through specialist forensic work, that he was likely to be aged in his late 50s to early 60s and was about 5 foot 6 tall. Radiocarbon dating forensic work was also able to reveal the victim likely died sometime between 2008 and 2012. A small amount of additional human remains were recovered from the river a week after the bags were found and DNA tested confirmed they were from the same person as the original discovery. DNA checks reveal the victim did not match with anyone on the UK's missing database. An inquest into the death was adjourned in November 2020 as the man had not been identified. Last year, police said more than 1,400 people had been spoken to as part of the investigation, with 1,140 statements or reports taken. A 26-year-old man from Sudbury was arrested in connection with the discovery on May 25th, but he was released under investigation. Police said the force is also following a number of lines of inquiry as the investigations continue. People queued from 6.30am in Bury St Edmunds yesterday to be seen by Dentaids volunteers at its free emergency dental clinic. The charity has come back to the town to deliver urgent treatment at the request of Bury St Edmunds Town Councillors and the Toothless in England campaign group. Vernon Holding, 54, from Red Lodge, had two teeth removed at the clinic following two extractions at the Dent Aid service in the town in November. He said he'd been in pain for more than two months. Why should we have to rely on charity? They do a brilliant job, but why, he said. If I hadn't got this treated, it could have got worse. Emma Johnson, 24, who works in retail, had travelled from Thetford to be seen, adding that she had been tempted to, to see to the tooth by herself. She said, I've been in quite a bit of pain for quite a while, and I'm not registered anywhere and I'm trying to work while talking to customers every day, and it's not a great experience. Jill Harding, Communications Director for Dent Aid, said 48 people had been seen at the clinic by early afternoon, which appears to be a new record for the charity for one day. She said a couple of the patients were children. Councillor Diane Hines said relying on charity-run clinics to bridge the gap in NHS dental provision was not sustainable going forward. It's a travesty and it shouldn't be occurring in the modern age that people are having to do this. Councillor Donna Higgins said she had heard more than one person saying they'd pulled their own teeth out. 
She said, there's two sides to this, the emergency care that's not being provided to people and also the run-up to that, the education, constant checking, the prevention is missing. Town councillors have used their locality funding to pay for this dent aid visit. Previously, a government spokesperson said, work is underway on dental contract reform. We are working with partners, including the British Dental Association, to look at alternative ways of commissioning services and making the NHS a more attractive place to work for dentists. Good progress is being made on the reconstruction of the replica of the Sutton Hoo grave ship following the completion of the boat's backbone. The final piece of the backbone has been installed as part of the project to create a replica of the longship, which was buried at Sutton Hoo in the 7th century and is believed to belong to the Anglo-Saxon king Raidwold. The vessel, the burial site, at which Sutton Hoo inspired the Netflix film The Dig, is being carefully created from scratch by volunteers at the Longshed on the quayside in Woodbridge, using the methods and structures used by the original builders more than 1,400 years ago. Last April, the newspaper reported how the keel pieces were transferred from the Longshed from Sutton Hoo Ships Company's second site along the A12 in Wickham Market. The keel is a lengthways timber structure along the base of the ship, which supports the framework of the ship. The ship is being built using tools that our Anglo-Saxon predecessors would have used, such as axes, and is expected to be completed in 2023, when it will finally set sail on the River Deben in recreation of Raidwell's final journey to his resting place. The build has been going on for the past three years, just a few miles away from the mound at Sutton Hoo, where the iconic burial ship was found in 1939. Building merchants, Jewson, have also provided sponsorship funds for the project. Andrew Bullard, the firm's timber development manager, said, We are very keen to exist in the sustainable build with timber, as it would have been 1,400 years ago, and the great work they are doing in using and making tools the period. It will continue to become and will continue to be an iconic site and project that will promote our town and county. A Suffolk-scented candle company is opening a new shop in Bury St Edmunds. Cozy Aromas, which sells more than 115 vegan-friendly scented spray oils, wax melts and candles, will be opening a new store at the Ark Shopping Centre in Bury St Edmunds later this year. They hope to open the new shop by May and plan to hire three new staff, including a shop manager. Co-founder Paul Main said, We're very excited to say we are opening a store in Bury St Edmunds. Being from Suffolk, my wife Tamar and I have always wanted to open a store in the town and are looking forward to bringing the Cozy brand to local people. We have built a real following across the UK with loyal customers sharing our, pa- our passion for vegan-friendly, cruelty-free products and are sure that people in Bury St Edmunds will love what we have to offer. Cozy Aromas was founded in 2018 by husband and wife team Paul and, Ta- and Tamar Main. Paul, who lived next to Tamar when growing up, would buy her flowers, candles and body sprays as gifts as their relationship blossomed in their teenage years. The couple got married in their 20s and started Cozy Aromas in their kitchen after they were disappointed with the purchased scented candle and decided to create their own. Since then, the company has expanded rapidly and now sends out more than 1,400 subscription boxes a month. It opened its first shop at Beach Street in Felixstowe in 2020 before opening a second at its Ipswich warehouse last year. In 2021, Cozy Aromas also expanded into Europe, penning a deal with a German distributor called Forster Online Handel, who sold their products to customers in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. In October, the company donated a percentage of sales from one candle to Baby Loss Awareness Week 
raising more than £3,500 for that charity. A petition has been launched calling for more time before a decision is made on the future of two threatened middle schools. Wesley Middle School and Horringer Court Middle School in Berry St Edmunds have been put forward for closure in August 2023 due to dwindling pupil numbers. As part of consultation by Unity Schools Partnership, parents have expressed their dismay over the plans and alternative proposals have been floated. A petition has been launched by Bury St Edmund Town Councillors Donna Higgins and Diane Hind in line in liaison with families and it has already amassed more than 700 names. It says the pandemic has caused enormous disruption to education over the last two years and now is not the time to start closing these schools. Tim Coulson, Chief Executive of Unity Schools Partnership, said, They acknowledge and welcome the petition. The petition says we recognise that the Academy has only been involved with these two schools for two years and feel they need more time to explore raising the numbers on roll. We call for pupils who are in current years four and five to be able to progress through the schools as they expected fulfilling their expectations for middle school provision and not being hindered by major reorganisation during their school life. A pupil pleaded with education bosses to save his school from potential closures at an emotional meeting. i gotten used to being at Wesley. I really like it here and I don't want to have the chance to go and have this school taken away. And now we're going to do some letters. And I've got one here which is headed, Litter is a National Disgrace. Sir, roll on springtime when Mother Nature in all her glory takes it upon herself to cover up yet again the utter filth that we as a species secrete into her once warm, welcoming, beautiful arms. Putting it bluntly, we don't deserve her. Abusing her with our endless garbage in whatever guise or whatever location... There is not a hedgerow, footpath, urban area, roadside verge or even a so-called beauty spot that is unaffected in some way, shape or form by human detritus. I bet if someone challenged me I could find evidence of human rubbish wherever. When are we ever going to get serious about littering our so-called green and pleasant land? The throwaway and couldn't-care-less society we have created is slowly drowning our country under a sea of rubbish. We talk a good game, put up a few posters and signs, and yes, there are a few good citizens who want to make a difference, but judging by what's around us, they appear to be in the minority. Yes, other countries in Europe have litter too, but few, if any, with the volumes that we have. Our roadside verges are a national disgrace and an embarrassment to us all. We need to get really tough on littering once and for all and use all our legal powers regularly, effectively and collectively to punish anyone who litters, from the cigarette butter to the fly tipper. There is simply no excuse. Sadly, I'm not convinced we will ever rid ourselves of this scourge. It's a bit like politics, really, you get the country you deserve, and this letter is from Alan Rowe of One House. Mike Heath of Great Cornard writes about the EU and Ukraine crisis. Not wishing to point out the obvious, the crisis unfolding in Ukraine and having the potential to erupt in Eastern Europe, the response from the EU has been deafening. One would assume it would be high on their political agenda. One mistake by either the Russians or NATO could result in a war locally, or, at worst, globally. Either way, the EU institutions in their entirety would be lost as an irrelevance due to inaction, procrastination and downright stupidity. In the immortal words of Delia Smith, Where are you? Where are you? Let's be having you. Come on. I want my MP to support calls for PM's resignation 
says David Keeble of Martlesham. Sir, I have sent an email to Therese Coffey, my MP. I urge everyone, if you have any integrity, to write to your MP in a similar vein so that we can rid, get rid, we can rid this country of this most mendacious, dishonest and untrustworthy Prime Minister. I have said to her, councillors, including members of Parliament, are governed by statutory rules in relation to their conduct in public life and also are subject to statutory rules regarding transparency about certain financial and personal interests. The seven principles are known as the Nolan Principles. Please explain to me how Boris Johnson's behaviour over the past two years has met these standards and confirm that you will support demands for his resignation. PM cannot take credit, writes Sarah Thompson from Woodbridge. In response to Philip Hobson's letter of January 29, Mr Johnson cannot take the credit for COP26. All the work was done by Alok Sharma. He is the one who travels to many countries to talk to leaders to encourage a maximum participation before the conference started. And he's the one that trod the difficult path between corporate, short-term mindsets and those caring about our environment and its long-term future. The Prime Minister hosted the event in name only. Also, I expect the relatives of those who died of COVID-19 while number 10 Downing Street parted to give a damn. Mr Hodson's vitriol towards the BBC appears to be at odds with reality. In the recent past, BBC News has often been criticised for its bias in favour of the government. Now, when it is delivering a more balanced view of events, he and other letters, correspondent Sheena Rawlings, don't like that and want to silence factual reporting. A fairer way to vote, writes John Davis of Bury St Edmunds. Sir, I can understand the frustration of Nick Wright, symbol of democratic decay, letters January the 27th, for being disappointed by a mendacious leadership and grossly disproportional representation. Plus other concerns, he is not alone. I wonder what he thinks about party percentage proportional representation, that's PPPR, that's my letter of January the 24th, which would work like this. Combine the four constituencies of, say, Bury St Edmunds, Ipswich, Suffolk Central and Suffolk Coastal to give the voters a chance of four same-party candidates. In the 2019 election, the combined votes in these constituencies were Conservatives 57.62%, Labour 25.57%. Having four seats, the price of a seat is 25% of the votes, so that the Conservatives would win two outright seats, plus another since no other party had enough votes, and Labour would gain one seat. All these Conservative and Labour voters could now say, my vote helped to elect an MP. In 2019, the Conservatives won all four seats, but with PPPR, it would be goodbye to the most unpopular Conservative candidate and hello to the most popular Labour candidate. Who would these people be? That would be for the combined electorate of over 323,000 people to decide with one vote on one voting paper. We must learn from the past, writes J. V. Appleton of Saxmundham. Sir, I am a living part of history. I and those of my age group are getting less with each passing year. I've lived through the early 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and now we're in the 22nd year of the 21st century. I've been told by many people I'm lucky to have such a good memory. I try and keep my brain active and keep up to date with changing technology. Many people have never heard of the doomsday clock. It is not a pessimistic statement. It is set each year from scientific data. It now stands at 100 seconds to midnight. It points to how close humanity comes to destroying itself. 
As the technology advances in many ways, the danger increases. Yes, technology has done many good things. It's also made more weapons of destruction. I remember the late 30s and 40s, having been brought up in a rural area. It's here the changes are more noticeable. Cars were few and far between. The hedgerows in the spring were full of nestling birds, cattle were in the fields, whose flowers were bl blooming in their open fields. I give talks on what these things were like in those days. Life was not easy. I do not look at things through rose-coloured glasses. But we survived, and are still here to tell the tale of those days long gone. I remember the wartime Christmases, with all the family sitting down to a Christmas dinner by candlelight and oil lamps. I could go on speaking of times that will never return, good and bad. We speak of the past, present and future, but stop and think. They're all bonded together. The future is in humanity's hands, but we must learn from the past and not repeat the mistakes. World leaders should remember that. Should remember that. Why does weather hit car washers, asks Peter Spencer of Berry St Edmunds. Why is it that the moment the cold weather appears with its attendant snow, ice, slush, rain, mud, grit and salt all over the roads, quietly corroding our vehicles, every automatic car wash for miles around shuts down for weeks on end? Oh, it's the cold weather, says the nice lady behind the garage till which immediately raises the question, how do they manage to keep their cars clean in the Scandinavian and other European countries whose winters are far more severe than ours? No time for slack, writes Rex Hyde of Ipswich. Graham South's letter, cut Boris some slack, conveniently ignores all the lies he's told us since the beginning of the breakfast debate through to Covid. By rights, he should look like Pinocchio. Norman is the pride of Cockfield, says Graham Day of Stowmarket. Sir, I was so pleased to see the media coverage, Berry Free Press, January 28th, given to Cockfield riding legend Norman Gregory on the occasion of his 100th birthday. His prescription to achieving a long life by keeping mentally and physically active is a very good one, and one that we should all follow if we can. Often with his friend, the young Norman Kelly cycling with him, the dynamic duo have raised thousands of pounds for charitable causes. They are the pride of Cockfield. Congratulations indeed. Sorry, criticism will continue. Graham South thinks that we should cut Boris some slack. Boris Johnson was a known liar when elected having been previously sacked for lying twice and had been an appalling foreign secretary prior to being prime minister. I've continually questioned how anyone could vote for this man. So I'm sorry for Mr South, I will not be giving up criticising Boris Johnson. It goes way beyond parties at number 10 and wine in suitcases or even lying in Parliament to the long-term damage to a large number of people's lives and futures by his actions and inactions, and the trashing of the UK in terms of international opinion. A few of Boris Johnson's chums have got richer on the back of his premiership. The majority in this country have been made much poorer by his poor judgment and lack of honesty and integrity, as written by Stephen Parkinson of Eastern Woodbridge. More cycle lanes would be welcome, says Lizzie Gale, writing via email. Any cycle lane is a benefit to us all, Berry Free Press, January the 28th. It keeps the danger, noise and toxicity of cars away from cyclists and pedestrians who are desperate for a safer, healthier and alternate lifestyle. Can I suggest you help promote awareness and debate about the advantages and safe use of cycle lanes, especially to the younger generation, possibly through schools and youth groups, who need to know about what's really behind the thinking of these pop-up cycle lanes. Because of the relentless government cutbacks in clean, reliable and regular public transport, car numbers are definitely up, the air we breathe is getting more toxic 
and road accidents and deaths are increasing. So yes, more cycle lanes, please. And my final letter is from T. Burkett, also via email. And it's headed, Huge Cost of MPs as Energy Prices Soar. With the publication of our local MPs' expenses and taking into account the fact that there are 650 MPs, the total annual cost will be in the region of £16 million. With MPs of all parties going on about the increase in the cost of living being exacerbated by the lifting of the energy price cap, it is not the time to introduce a price cap. Is it not the time to introduce a price cap on MPs' expenses? A young family man in the northeast has to find this extra cost out of his meagre annual income, while one of our local MPs claims over £3,000 for utility costs. Still, the electorate of Bury and the surrounding area will return these three local MPs in the next election to enable them to continue their life of luxury. Ho boy, that's a rum'un. Here's a feature. Charlie Haylock, we need to preserve the Suffolk accent. The historian is going on tour, explaining the importance of our dialect and what it was like to teach Ralph Fiennes the art of speaking Suffolk. It's been over a year since one of Netflix's biggest and most popular feature-length films was released. On January 15, 2021, The Dig took the world by storm and one of Suffolk's most prominent ambassadors worked on the set of the production, helping its cast to nail the perfect Suffolk accent. Charlie Haylock has spent the vast majority of his life here in the county and has a number of achievements to his name. Alongside being a successful dialect coach, he's also authored a handful of books, regularly features on BBC Radio Suffolk and compiles monthly cartoons for the East Anglian Daily Times. But how did Charlie find himself becoming the unofficial spokesman for all things Suffolk? It evolved over time. Many years back, the East Anglian Daily Times magazine asked me to do a monthly feature about the Suffolk dialect called Line Yourself Suffolk. <laughs> Following that, a publisher who was holidaying in the county approached me and asked me to write a book on the Suffolk dialect called Slightly on the Hook. And after that, other books followed. Following the success of his bestseller, Charlie was approached by Eastern Angles Theatre Company to give dialect training to an actor who was playing Basil Brown in a play called The Sutton Who Mob in the early 2000s. Later on, Charlie also embarked upon creating a YouTube dialect tour of the UK, in which he showed how a deaf person can work out what dialect you're speaking in simply by lift reading. And as fate would have it, it was that YouTube dialect tour that caught the attention of the revered actor Ralph Fiennes back in July 2019, in the run-up to him portraying Basil Brown in Netflix's adaptation of The Dig. He showed the video to Netflix and said, there's the man I want to teach me the Suffolk accent. And boy, was Charlie up to the task. People were fed up with listening to a West Country dialect when a film or television show was supposed to be set in Suffolk. And all of a sudden, this film comes out about an iconic place in Suffolk, so I knew I had to make sure the accent was right. Well before and throughout the filming, Charlie spent over five months teaching the film's cast of A-listers how to really nail that Suffolk twang. It's such a stellar job that Ralph Fiennes himself requested that Charlie remain working on the film until it was complete. The results certainly speak for themselves. As Charlie said, There are a few odd words here and there, but generally people know they're speaking in a true Suffolk accent. But what is it about the Suffolk dialect that makes it so unique? and worth sharing and preserving for future generations. Suffolk is in fact the birthplace of the English language, according to Charlie and many other historians. Suffolk is where the Angles first settled in the 5th century, and they were one of the four tribes who made their way over here, alongside the Saxons, the Jutes, the Frisians and the Angles. When they arrived, the first place they settled was present-day Ipswich. 
Their kings then settled in what is now Woodbridge and Rendlesham. And when the king died, they were buried at Sutton Hoo. Back in 2009, there was a programme on the BBC called Raiders of the Lost Past with Dr Janina Ramirez. And on it, she explored the three agricultural digs that she felt were the most important in the history of the world. And one of these three was Sutton Hoo. She said, Where the Angles settled in Suffolk was not only the first page in English history, it was also the first page of English people, and therefore the first page of the English language. That's how important Suffolk was, and still is, the history of spoken English. With a Suffolk accent holding such an historical and cultural importance, and at risk of going extinct, Charlie is determined to share it far and wide. And why? And we have one more feature for you. Sue Smith of West Suffolk Hospital's My Wish Charity talks to Barbara Eales about getting through the darkest days of the COVID pandemic and how amazing community, community backing continues to support their work. When COVID turned the world upside down and left the NHS facing the fight of its life, the crisis brought with it a huge dilemma. Who cares for the carers? At West Suffolk Hospital, the answer was clear. With frontline staff driven close to breaking point, the hospital's My Wish charity rapidly stepped up. Its focus widened from providing a better experience for patients to doing its utmost to support the staff so they in turn could do their best for those in their care. The charity's team of five, led by head of fundraising Sue Smith, took on tasks from creating calm rooms to buying stacks of loo rolls to help staff hit by supermarket shortages. We just rolled up our sleeves and got on with it. The team were amazing and all went above and beyond their normal roles, said Sue. She worked through the night setting up a new fund to support those in the forefront of the fight against the disease, which was then a terrifying and unknown enemy. The Help Your Hospital NHS COVID appeal has so far raised well over £300,000. What we've been able to do with that money over the last 18 months is to go to the core of where patients and staff needed extra support, Sue explained. When we launched the appeal, our first COVID ward was open to receive patients. Staff were leaving their families at home and coming in knowing that they could catch this disease. It was an unprecedented situation. Our priority had always been about families and patient support, but COVID turned that on its head. We needed to support the staff to support the patients. I was running around taking care of staff, but I wasn't in the thick of it. I can't imagine how difficult it was for staff members. They're all heroes and I will do this as long as I can for people taking care of people. When the community started going out on Thursdays and clapping for the NHS, it was humbling and the support was amazing. On the first evening everyone clapped. I stood up at my front window and sobbed. Thinking about it still makes me well up. The charity does not just work for the hospital, but for the whole West Suffolk Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, which also includes Newmarket Hospital and community services. The start of the pandemic saw panic buying and shortages, which often meant doctors and nurses finishing a long shift to then be faced with empty supermarket shelves. The first thing we did was bought loo rolls, bleach, tea, coffee and sanitizer, said Sue. We bagged it all together and gave it to the staff who were desperately in need of these things. Our volunteer office was stacked up with toilet rolls. As hospital beds filled with desperately sick COVID patients, the workload took its toll on staff. We set up calm rooms to provide a safe space for them to spend quiet time, said Sue. They were open 24 hours a day. Some people might say, well, it's just a room, but it's so much more where people can feel safe when they go on. The rooms were filled with lamps, lights and pictures, a nice, warm, calming environment, so you just feel peaceful. It made such a difference. 
we put in things like hand cream and snacks. Donations of goods started to come in and we commandeered the car parking pod at the front of the hospital to receive them. Fundraisers of all ages made a mammoth effort to support the appeal. Ben Blows, 47, ran 50 miles around his front garden and raised over £4,000. Ben from Gaisley had to walk the last few miles as running in circles aggravated an old ankle injury. And then there was seven-year-old Freddie Turner, who made £1,925 with his online fitness with Freddie coaching. With help from his dad, Stu, a personal trainer, he put together a programme of exercises including squats, lunges and star jumps for the 20-minute workout filmed by his brother Ollie, nine. Meanwhile, photographer Neil Baxter took photos of people on their doorsteps and raised over £1,200, selling them the pictures. A mother of five who lost her home and business in a devastating fire has spoken about how she managed to cope. Janet Fisher, 43, from Bury St Edmunds, has had a turbulent few years during which she lost her brother, John Fisher, 35, in 2015, and parted from her husband the year before. But she's managed to remain positive throughout and ran the virtual London Marathon for West Suffolk Hospital, where she now works. She raised a total of £675.52 for the My Wish charity, specifically for the hospital's midwifery team. Julie wants to thank the hospital and community nursing team for the care and attention she received when she gave birth to her children, two of whom were born at West Suffolk and three at home. Julie used to run the Highwayman's guest house in Risby, but she said a devastating fire there in June 2020 left them homeless and put an end to her business for about 40 years. The insurance claim has only just been finalised. Julie, who works in payroll at West Suffolk Hospital, added, Friends and family are an amazing support, as is spending time in nature and running with my dog, Hope. It has been difficult during the lockdown with isolation of the children being quite confined. However, I remain positive as we do have our health and are able to be together. She said the Bridge Church community in Bury St Edmunds has helped to cope with single parenting teenage children and, when they can, the family enjoys sailing and beach holidays. And some more general news. The television presenter and archaeologist Ben Robinson has named two Suffolk villages as amongst the best in England. Mr Robinson, who has worked on BBC documentaries including The Last Journey of the Magna Carta King and Pubs, Ponds and Power, The Story of the Village, named West Stowe and Lavenham among his favourites in the magazine Country Life. The Britain's Most Historic Towns presenter chose West Stowe for its connection to the Dark Ages. In the 1960s, a team of archaeologists excavated the remains of a village dating from potentially as far back as 400 years, a 400 years AD. While all the timber had vanished, the buildings left an impression in the ground which they would use to work out the plan of the village. This was enough to inspire experimental archaeologists to reconstruct these ancient buildings and their contents on the original sites. The rebuilt village stands to this day, giving visitors a chance to explore the origins of the English village and the English themselves. Mr Robinson picked the village of Lavenham for its later history. He tells us that in 1524, the then town had the 14th highest tax return in the country more than the now substantial settlements of Lincoln, Gloucester or York. This is because of its then pre-eminence in the wool trade, which once dominated this part of the world. The fine timber-framed halls in the village are a result of this wealth. An exhibition uncovering stories of the incredible Suffolk women who kept the country on its feet during the Second World War took place in Ipswich recently. Soil Sisters was held at the Hold 
and was painstakingly put together by Nicky Reynolds, Vicky Abbott, Mary Pereira and Holly Breger after three years of research into the Women's Land Army with the help of tireless volunteers. They undoubtedly changed the face of British agriculture, said WLA historian Nicky Reynolds. In Suffolk, we have a rich agricultural history and the Land Army has been part of that. We had the largest WLA hostel in the country, which was opened in Lakenheath in 1942. It had 116 girls stationed there. You can imagine the impact of over 100 young, mostly single women, had in a fairly quiet, sleepy village. They'd all be out, working the fields and the farms. There were something like 36 weddings of land girls to local chaps. Nicky and her colleagues have done their best to uncover as many stories as possible. We know about Peggy Brown, who's the forewoman out at Camp Ash Hospital, said Nicky. And we've got Daphne Lake, who was one of the first women in Suffolk to be awarded Tracklear Driving Proficiency. Then there's Edna Girling, who was tragically killed at the age of 17. She was drawn into some bailing machinery in a horrific accident. She's the only WLA member whose name appears on the War Memorial Ipswich. Nikki and the team hope that through their exhibition, these incredible women's stories will continue to be told. Soil Sisters includes original uniform worn by the land girls, photographs, paperwork, ephemera and 50 digital resources, including Holly Breger's film Land Girls and the Horses of Suffolk. We've also managed to track down women who've served and are still with us, so we can conduct oral history interviews which can then be archived, says Nikki proudly. These ladies are rare gems, but they're still around. They're in their 90s. There's Annie Catchpole, who's just turned 100. It's a limited window of opportunity that we have, and we are doing our very best to capture these stories while we still can. They're women who did their bit, often with a quiet grace and not much fuss or funfare, but without them we would have been in a real pickle. The boss of a Suffolk NHS trust has apologised to a sexual assault victim who was attacked while in hospital after staff dismissed her report and claimed that the incident did not happen. The victim, who has anonymity under the law, was admitted to West Suffolk Hospital's emergency department following an overdose in January 2021. She was waiting for a mental health assessment from Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust's specialist team when she reported being attacked by a male patient in the cubicle next to hers. The victim immediately told a nurse what had happened as well as the specialist team who assessed her after the sexual assault took place. But a patient safety review into the incident, published several months later and shared with the Health Service Journal, reveals the nurse who was told about the sexual assault stated, this has not happened, in her notes incorrectly adding that the male had been under constant observation. The mental health team also did not escalate the allegation to senior management, who only became aware of the incident when the victim raised a complaint with the hospital in March. In a letter to the patient, Interim Chief Executive Craig Black said he was truly sorry that she was sexually assaulted in the emergency department and was saddened to hear staff dismissed her claims. A man, a father, who pushed a man to the floor in a West Suffolk supermarket after a row about the behaviour of his young son has been ordered to pay compensation. Suffolk Magistrates Court heard how Ashley Ruffles, 34, was shopping in Sainsbury's in Bury St Edmunds with his nine-year-old son around 1pm on July the 18th last year. Ruffles' son then began behaving badly in the store and an argument ensued with a man who had told him to get his son under control, the court heard. Ruffles then forcefully pushed the man to the back with his two hands and the victim fell on the supermarket floor. The man sustained minor injuries in the incident, including grazing to his head and bruising to his knee. David Bryant, prosecuting, told the court. The victim did not require any medical treatment, the court heard. The incident was captured on the stall's CCTV and played to the court. In a police interview... 
Ruffles told officers the man had pushed his son and he'd retaliated. There's no evidence of this on the CCTV, Mr Bryant told the court. Ruffles, of Wagtail Drive at Bury St Edmunds, pleaded guilty to assault by beating at Suffolk Magistrates Court on Friday. He had no previous convictions, the court heard. The Deputy District Judge handed Ruffles a two-year conditional discharge and ordered him to pay £500 in compensation to the victim. Ruffles was also told he must pay £85 in court costs but was not ordered to pay a victim surcharge. Mencap, a charity which supports people with learning disabilities, staged a recruitment and fundraising event on Wednesday. The charity had a stall in Berries and Edmonds Town Centre with live music and food to recruit volunteers and support workers, raise money for a new disability accessible play area and raise awareness. Casey Goodchild, Assistant Service Manager at the Society's Drummond Court Care Home in Berry, said... We wanted to raise awareness of the service because a lot of people don't know we exist. We're also looking at building a park area on site because there are no disabled parks in Bury St Edmunds, no wheelchair-friendly swings, so our wheelchair users are going to be able to enjoy that. Businesses and traders into Bury St Edmunds remain on tenterhooks over a decision on whether the town's award-winning Christmas fair will take place this year. The popular fair, which regularly attracts around 130,000 people over four days in November, has been cancelled by the organisers West Suffolk Council for the past two years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. A number of smaller events took place in the town year instead of the fair, which is one of the biggest of its kind in the country. The council is currently being kept very tight-lipped over the future of this year's fair, but did say last month that no decision has yet been made. A number of Berry businesses would certainly be keen for the fair to return in 2022, with the event estimating to be worth millions of pounds to the local economy. Last month, business chief Mark Cordell told the newspaper that some traders earn more money in the Christmas fair weekend than they do in the month of January. A Suffolk warehouse worker who grew 71 cannabis plants has been warned he could be jailed when he is sentenced next month. Before Ipswich Crown Court yesterday, for a plea hearing, was Daniel Crooks, 32, of Wren Close, Bury St Edmunds. He pleaded guilty to two offences of producing cannabis on August 12, 2020. Matthew Sorrell Cameron for Brooks asked for the case to be adjourned to allow a pre-sentence to be prepared on his client. He also said he would be asking the court to consider passing a suspended prison sentence. Judge Emma Peters agreed to adjourn the case until March the 25th to allow a probation report to be prepared on Crooks and told him this crosses the custody threshold. It will undoubtedly be a custodial sentence and the question is whether it will be immediate or suspended. I'm not excluding anything and there is a possibility you could go to prison immediately that day and you should prepare for that. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet to which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. There are no specific telephone numbers mentioned in this edition. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Anna... uh, Adrian Sorry. and Mary. Adrian, Roger and Mary, it's goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.